As you probably know or read in the paper Friday, <coughs> Friday was the 26th anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision, the Supreme Court decision that legalized abortion in America. And since that time, 35 million abortions have occurred here in our country. And even today, we have about 4,400 of them every day. Our uh, Texas government, as well, is batting around the, uh, the issue of whether or not uh, parents have to be notified if their minors, uh, minor daughters wanting to have an abortion. And I say all that to say that though it's been 26 years, it's still a very relevant issue, both personally and politically, for our nation. Uh, but it is not just an issue that's relevant outside the church. The fact is that one out of every six women who have abortions are evangelical Christians. And for that reason, I'd like to say today that if you are, have struggled with that, uh, that kind of a pain in the past or you are struggling with it now, you are safe here. You are safe here. You need to know that uh, we are not going to point fingers and condemn you any more than we would for anything else done wrong. I think it's so sad that when people are hurting that they, uh, they finally feel like they can come before the Lord or want to come to God and open up their wounded heart and they come in to a church and the only thing that they hear is how much God hates sin without hearing how much God loves the sinner. So today I want to do really two things. I want to talk about how much uh, God loves, how precious life is to God. And secondly, I want to offer a word of comfort for those of you who may have been walking wounded. Mother Teresa, several years ago at the National Prayer Breakfast, she was the keynote speaker. And uh, in the audience was President Clinton and his wife, Vice President, his wife. Uh, 3,000 people, many members of Congress were there. And I was so tickled, Cal Thomas, probably the only guy that would report on a, uh, a, uh, a speech like this. Our liberal media probably wasn't all excited about it. But uh, she made a statement. She said, America used to be a very generous nation. And we have become a very selfish nation, the greatest indicator of that selfishness being abortion. She said that in front of all our congressional leaders. And she made this statement. She said, quote, Any country that accepts abortion is not teaching its people to love, but to use any violence to get what they want. And after she said that, after she made that statement, most of those 3,000 people rose to their feet in a standing ovation. And uh, I'm told in the article, Cal Thomas says that he was there and he looked at Clinton and see, to see what he did and <laughs> said he reached for his water glass and that he and his wife and the vice president and his wife just basically stared expressionless. Afterwards, when Clinton was asked about this, um, about her speech, which was wholly focused around this issue, he said that 
her remarks are beyond criticism because of the life that she's led. Let me ask you a question. Do you think God is bipartisan? What do you think? You think God favors one over the other? You know, today I want to make a point very clear. And uh, the church, you know, is not supposed to dabble in political issues. Well, this is not a political issue at its root. Abortion is not answering the question, do I have uh, the right to choose? The question that we've got to answer with abortion at its very essence is, when does life begin? When does life begin? I'd like for us to look at several verses on the screen, first of all, and then I'm going to ask you in a little bit to turn to the book of Luke. But first of all, look at the screen as I read from an often quoted psalm on this subject. David says in Psalm 139, Thou didst form, to God he prays, Thou didst form my inward parts. Thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from thee when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were, written, all, they were all written, the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. We've called the message today A Wonderful Life. And we've, I've called it that because primarily of this psalm, when David says that this life that is in the womb, particularly when he refers to himself, when he was in his mother's womb, describes himself as being wonderfully made and that God's works are wonderful. Wonderful are thy works. The life within the womb, God says, is wonderful. If you're familiar with the story of John the Baptist, you may recall that Luke records that John the Baptist was to be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. His mother's name was Elizabeth, and uh, she and Jesus' mother, Mary, were pregnant around the same time, or at least part of their pregnancies overlapped. And at one point, Mary went to visit Elizabeth while uh, both of them were pregnant. And Luke again tells us it came about when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she said, For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. God does not view that unborn child as a part of the mother, but rather like, like you would look at his, like a spleen or a kidney or something, but rather as a whole life within the mother. One that is even capable here, we see with John the Baptist, of leaping with joy. Jesus' mother Mary conceived... Uh, outside of marriage through the Holy Spirit. She was an unwed mother initially, or an unwed, unwed pregnancy initially. 
And today, 79%, I'm told, of the abortions that occur, occur outside of marriage. Basically, 80% outside of marriage. Elizabeth, on the other hand, mother of John the Baptist, she was way past childbearing age. And yet, she conceived. So you've got uh, these two women who almost typify the reason that both unmarried and married women today have abortions. Unmarried, mostly because of the shame of it. And yet Mary, uh, the child Jesus, came from that union, the Holy Spirit and Mary. And Elizabeth, who would today be termed a high-risk pregnancy, through had a miraculous conception being so old and gave birth to John the Baptist. And yet today, both of these children would be at risk. There was a lady that called the organization, uh, she called Focus on the Family, pretty much in distress. She called uh, being five months pregnant, and uh, she said that she'd gone to three different doctors, and they said that she had a very low uh, amniotic fluid, that she would, uh, the baby would probably die, and that they recommended that she go ahead and end the child's life, or have an abortion, as they say. And uh, she didn't want to do that. So she went to a pro-life doctor who would not do abortion but would give her an honest opinion. And, the, and that doctor said that this child had a 99.9% .9 chance of dying. She still chose not to have it. And uh, as time went on, basically a miracle happened. Uh, kidneys began to form where there were none before. The amniotic fluid was just fine. They said she was going to have to give birth if she did it all at seven months, and she carried the child to term and had a perfectly fine baby boy with a 99% nine chance that it wasn't going to work. Now, God doesn't always do those kind of miracles. Okay, so I don't share that to say, you know, you can, you can fix, you can try to trap God into doing what you would like him to do with these kind of high-risk pregnancies. God doesn't always do that. Remember the time that uh, Jesus' disciples came up to this man. The text tells us that he was blind from his mother's womb. He was born blind, but literally, the original language says he was blind from his mother's womb. And they asked Jesus, uh, who sinned? Was it his parents or was it him that this man was born blind? Remember what Jesus said to the, said to the disciples? It says, neither, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this man was born blind that the works of God might be displayed in him. God had a particular reason for allowing this deformity, this abnormality in the birth of this, this little boy so that the works of God might be revealed in him. God told Moses, Moses didn't want to go and uh, uh, release the people from Egypt he gave an excuse that he couldn't talk well. And God told Moses, the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him dumb or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? That's always been a tough verse for me. To see that God willingly allows what he could change. He willingly allows some a child to be born like this. Why? We see from Jesus' statement that the works of God might be displayed. 
There can be some kind of a work of God in the life of that child that otherwise couldn't be. Think about Helen Keller. What do you think her parents thought the first few years as they realized that this little girl was both deaf and blind? And yet, how God used that woman. What do you think Beethoven's parents would have figured uh, how Beethoven would have turned out? Beethoven's daddy had tuberculosis. His mother had syphilis. Uh, the children that were born before Beethoven, one was born uh, dead, if I'm not mistaken. One was born blind or deaf and dumb, and one had tuberculosis. I mean, what, what would Beethoven's odds be these days in that kind of a family? And that, that, is, that is the background of Beethoven and how God used that guy. In fact, the guy was stone-cold deaf when he wrote one of the greatest symphonies that, uh, that we celebrate now, the Ninth Symphony. Stone deaf when he wrote it. Dred Scott, he was a black man that lived in the previous century during the time of slavery wanted his freedom, went to the judges. Some of the judges had slaves, and so the judges decided in what was called the Dred Scott decision that a, that a slave was not a citizen. They basically redefined what a person was to where the Constitution did not apply to a black man. The, uh, the Nazis did a very similar thing, didn't they? They redefined what a person was for both the blacks and the Jews. And I think our government by and large, through the Roe versus Wade, has done a very similar thing. Has redefined person, a, a baby, and we call it a product of conception, or we call it a fetus. You know what a fetus really it means? Fetus is from a Latin word that means baby. Dr. James Dobson makes a great point, I think. He says that often we justify the abortion for in the cape of rape and incest. Actually, only 1% of all abortions occur because of rape and incest, or for that reason. And he says that you, we wouldn't kill a one-month-old child who is outside the womb because they were born with, uh, through the product of rape and incest. So why would we do it inside the womb if it is still a baby? If indeed it is a life like God says it is. Again, I want to bring it back. This is not a political issue. This is a moral issue. It is not a, an issue of freedom of choice. It is an issue of when does life begin. Because if life begins in the womb, as the scripture indicates it does, then it is not an issue of freedom of choice. I don't have the freedom to take a life. I, I can't walk down the street and take a life any more logically so than I should be able to do that in the womb of a mom. Now, there are many folks who are very strongly outspoken against this issue and so much so take it to the extent that they will blow up abortion clinics, they will murder doctors who perform abortions, all in the name of God, saying that, well, one dies to save thousands. And they'll say that, uh, and they have, I guess, they're well-meaning, thinking, considering it to be a war. 
But the scripture, I don't think, gives us that prerogative. Now, it does if the, if the law requires us to sin. If the law requires us to sin, then we're told that we are to break the law of man because the law of God is higher. But there is no law that commands abortion. It is in China. There it would be tough. But here, it just allows it. It doesn't require it. And so I personally think that doing that kind of destructive, uh, destructive actions is not scriptural. And nor is it scriptural to be so outspoken to only talk about the sin without talking about the love of God for the mother who walks around with the guilt of having made that decision. And that is where I want to turn now and to focus on. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 7. Luke 7, verse 36. To me, this is one of the best stories in the life of Christ recorded that we can apply to this issue. Jesus is going to be invited to dinner to eat with a Pharisee named Simon. Luke 7, verse 36. Let's pick up the story. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she heard that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissing his feet, and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. I want you to try to picture this scene if you can. Try to picture this scene. The Pharisee is a very well-respected religious leader, okay, kind of on par with the way the Pope is now in the Catholic Church. The Pharisee was very well respected and looked up uh, towards. And obviously would have a very nice home to invite this young rabbi Jesus in. He would have uh, had a great meal, would have probably, probably brought out the best china, doing a great job here to entertain this teacher called Jesus. And there in the midst of some theological discussion, no doubt, in walks this woman, and the text calls her a sinner. And if, uh, if you have a note in your margin, it, what it's referring to is a, an immoral woman. By all likelihood, this was probably a local prostitute. A local prostitute in the house of the Pope. All right, you got the picture? And Jesus... Is, is sitting there reclining and this woman comes behind him and begins to weep so much so that she is wetting Jesus' feet with her tears. She risks what she knows is going to be an awkward situation. She faces the pain. She faces the ridicule that she undoubtedly expects in walking into the house 
of a Pharisee. And we see from his reaction, notice we're, we're just told what he's thinking. He doesn't say this. He, he says it to himself, so he's thinking this. He's thinking that if Jesus knew what kind of a woman this was, and this is what he thinks, what sort of a person this woman is, you get the clear indication there that this Pharisee, Simon, sees himself as far above what this woman is. Most abortions are done out of fear of shame of the pregnancy. And most abortions are kept hidden after the fact out of fear of rejection of having done such an act, especially in the church. Like I said, one out of every six is abortions are done uh, by an evangelical Christian woman. And it is not well received in the church to come in and to have the courage and the vulnerability to share what Vicki shared this morning. In a lot of places, that would meet with the same kind of reaction that the Pharisee receives. And so it's no small wonder why so many ladies continue to walk around with this guilt because they finally muster up the courage to come in and to open their wounded heart to God and what do they hear? This kind of self-righteousness. But now I want you to look at what Jesus says. And he doesn't say initially to the woman. He says it to Simon, to the Pharisee. Look what he says to him. And just these first few words are great. It says, and Jesus answered. Luke says he answered. Now Simon didn't say anything. He was just thinking. Jesus answered his thoughts. Isn't that great? Answered his thoughts and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. So Simon probably thinks now. Okay, now Jesus is going to, to indicate that he's a prophet and what kind of a woman this is. But instead he tells a story. Verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. It's about a year and a half's wages and the other 50. That's about a month and a half wages. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Jesus asked. Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, notice, he, he is a prophet, he does know, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. It was the custom of that day as they'd walk around in sandals. Obviously, on dirty roads, you get your feet dirty. You'd walk in. If you were a guest at somebody's house, the servant would wash your feet. It was kind of like, it's kind of like taking your coat now. It was a very polite thing to do and expected. Simon didn't do that. 
to Jesus. You kind of wonder why. He didn't give the customary greeting and he didn't go the extra mile and anoint Jesus' head with oil. But this lady did all of this, not on Jesus' head, but on his feet. She came in and fell down before Jesus and, and displaying her love for Jesus Christ performed these acts of humility. And I like what Jesus says to Simon. He says, do you see this woman? Well, of course he does. He's about to make a point and a great contrast between this parable, this story he's told, of the debtor who owed a year and a half's wages, who owed a lot, and the debtor that just owed a month and a half. Both were forgiven. Who loved more? The one who owed a year and a half. The one who was the bigger sinner had the greater love. And this is what Jesus says, obviously comparing Simon, who didn't think he had very much to forgive, be forgiven of, and the woman who knew she was a sinner and who came down in front of Jesus and received his forgiveness. Jesus' point is that the extent of our love for Christ needs to reflect the extent of our forgiveness. And incidentally, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, who died for all of your sins, to what extent have you been forgiven? Completely. What should be the extent of your love? Completely. And I don't know who you identify more with in this passage, but the more you grow in your Christian life, the more you're going to identify with this woman. Because what's going to happen is you're going to grow more and more through reading the Scriptures and learning about how holy God is and how sinful you really are. You're going to see more of your sin. And yet the incredible, it's a queer paradox, admittedly, that you see yourself as a, as a greater sinner or you realize that there is more sin in your life than you ever realized that there was. And yet that doesn't develop in you a greater heart of shame, but rather it develops in you a greater appreciation for the love of Christ because you realize how much He has forgiven you. This lady had a, a much better grasp of the love of God than Simon did, than the great religious Pharisee. Because she knew she had been forgiven very much. And now Jesus turns in verse 48 and he says something to her for the first time. Look at this. And he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We will look sometimes at abortion as the unforgivable sin. The guilt can be overwhelming, especially for a young Christian lady. To come in and to hear that abortion is sin, abortion is wrong, abortion is slaughter, it's murder. But to not hear of the love of God that forgives all sin. And even if you are a Christian, the biggest issue, one of the biggest issues is I can't forgive myself. 
Over and over and over, you'll hear that. I can't forgive myself. In fact, there was a survey done of uh, ladies who had had an abortion and not just, believing, not just believers that said that 100% of them felt guilt after the fact. And 95% of them said they had a great struggle forgiving themselves. But you know what's true? You can't forgive yourself. Forgiveness is a gift that you receive. I thought that was one of the most insightful things that Andy, Vicky's husband, told her as she was struggling to forgive herself. That forgiveness is a gift that you receive. It's not something you talk yourself into. It's not a feeling. It is a gift that you receive. And this lady coming before Jesus, I think she realized that. And so Jesus was able to tell her, go in peace. And I think she could. Go in peace. And I can just imagine the dignity with which she got up there in the midst of all the self-righteousness to walk out of that room with sins forgiven. The dignity that she was able to carry herself knowing that Christ had forgiven even her, an immoral woman. Now you may say, well, I've placed my faith in Christ, but I still don't feel forgiven. Well, I want to tell you that sometimes it's a process. For some folks, it happens like that. For most of us, it's a process of growth, of realizing what a gift it is that you have received. It's a process of growth. And you, like this lady, have to be willing to face the pain and not hide from it, to not take an aspirin and try to avoid the feelings, to not busy yourself with so many things that you don't think about it, to not sit and wish, I think, look at the past, I wish I hadn't done that, I wish I hadn't done that. You can't go back and change it. But what you can do is face the pain square on and come to the feet of Jesus and receive the peace that he offers you. You know, forgiveness for any sin, any of the biggies that the church shakes its finger at today of homosexuality, of divorce, of abortion, and many others that good people don't do. That's baloney. Jesus Christ died for sin. Doesn't matter if it was a little thing or if it was a great thing. Jesus died for our sin. And you know what? One thing that's so helpful to me in the realm of abortion and thinking about forgiveness there is that the life that was taken from the womb, the sin that is represented there, that lady must initially realize that that was not the first life taken because of sin. That there was an innocent child killed on a cross 2,000 years ago because of sin. You see, all of us, in some sense, are responsible for the death of an innocent child. Because Jesus, the only begotten of his Father, was put to death for our sins. Forgiveness of any sin must first realize that our, our sin caused the death of Jesus and that his death paid for those sins. I thought of a couple of good applications, I think, from this message on a wonderful life. What can I do for a wonderful life? And for that I'm speaking of not to have a wonderful life, but for the sake of a life that is wonderful. First of all, for the life in the womb. And that's pray. Alright? And I hope that's not trite in your mind. I hope you really take that as an application. Pray. 
In fact, we're told in the Scriptures regarding our government. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men, particularly for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. The Scripture tells us that the way we impact our government is by praying for our government officials. By praying for them. That can have a significant impact because you get into their heart when you pray for them. Look at the back of the message notes in the bulletin. We've got a big full sheet. The back of it, about midway down, after the two pictures of the books, it says, Where to contact your governing officials. In addition to praying, you can contact these folks and let them know how you feel about this issue. And we've listed everybody from the president all the way down to our local Denton representatives. You can contact them and let them know your convictions as constituents. And also, secondly, for a wonderful life, and this I'm speaking now particularly of the life of the mother who's walking wounded. You get involved with the Woman to Woman Pregnancy Resource Center. That's the uh, the, the new name for the Crisis Pregnancy Center here in Denton. And by the way, we are very blessed to have one here in Denton, just a few blocks over. Not every city in America has a Crisis Pregnancy Center. We are so blessed to have it. Look at this verse in 2 Corinthians. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and, notice, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we may comfort those and any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. All the pain that you've gone through in your life is not just for you. What is it that you're hurting with right now? Or that you're hurting 10, 15 years ago, you thought, God, I can't imagine why a loving God would let me go through this kind of pain. This verse gives us a little clue as to why. It's not just for you. It's also for the people that God's going to bring into your life but the comfort that you have received through your pain, you can turn around. And like Vicki was able to do for us this morning, and to share, I was hurting, I made mistakes, but yet Christ's peace was given to me, and this is how I did it. If you have been hurting from a past abortion, I want to encourage you to have the courage that Vicki had, to have the courage that this lady had to come before Jesus and to go to this center that is a blessing that we have in Denton, to people where you are safe, where you will not be rejected or laughed or ridiculed, but you will be understood and counseled and encouraged with the comfort that they themselves have received from God. And on that same sheet that has all our officials on it, we've got a couple of good resources here for you to look at. Hurting from a past abortion, this is speaking of that Bible study that Vicki went through the PACE group, the Post-Abortion Counseling and Education. Excellent group. Excellent Bible study for you to get involved with. There's a Bible study starting in March. If you will call, you can be a part of that. And until then, if you'd like to do some reading on the subject, we've listed there a couple of great books on dealing with post-abortion stress. Season to Heal and I'll Hold You in Heaven, Healings and Hope for the Parent of a Miscarried, Aborted, or stillborn child. The Lord has graciously provided for you
resources that you can begin to heal if you will face the pain and go forward with it. You say, well, what kind of an impact can I make? There is no way I can make an impact. Yes, you can. You can pray. You can help out this center uh, financially. You can help them out uh, prayerfully. You can call and you can volunteer in some manner. There is a way that you can make a difference. You say, you know, you look at, there's 4,400 abortions every day. You think, how in the world can I make an impact with that kind of uh, numbers, those kind of mathematics? What kind of an impact can I have? Well, let me tell you a quick little story. There's this guy walking down the beach, and he saw way off in the distance this old man bending down and picking something up and throwing it as hard and as fast as he could into the ocean. And it's kind of odd, so this guy runs up there and he sees this old man picking up starfish that had been stranded from the low tide going back out. And he looked on the beach and there were thousands of these starfish there on the beach who would die because they'd get all dehydrated if they didn't get thrown back in the ocean. So this old man was picking up just as fast as he could and throwing these starfish back in. Thousands of these starfish on the beach. And this guy says to this old man, why are you doing this? He says, there's thousands of these. There's no way you can throw them all. What makes you think that you can really do something that matters? And he picked up, the old man picked up one of these starfish and held it in this guy's face and he says, it matters to this one. <laughs> and he took it and threw it in. And the guy said he, he thought about it and he realized that. And he said, you know, you're right. And he bent down and he started helping the old man throwing all these starfish back in. You can make a difference. I asked Sharon Vaughn, who runs the Crisis Pregnancy Center down there, give me some statistics about what your center has done. And she said that last year, uh, of the 29 ladies that came in abortion-minded, meaning intending to have one or, or considering it, there were 27 of them that walked out or left the, the clinic deciding not to have an abortion. 27 out of the 29. And also 38 ladies placed their faith in Jesus Christ as a result of that ministry. You can make a difference. And believe me, it matters to that one.